What I wanted to start out with today is something that I really was building up to last week, and I realized it, and I asked Rachel, and I talked to Travis about it. I was building up to this whole thing, and I forgot to finish it, because we actually ran out of time, which, which is usual. This, <laughs> so I want to finish that up. We technically are done with the book of Judges, but the, the riddle. Remember we were talking about the devourer, out of devourer comes something sweet, right? Out of the lion, Samson kills the lion, and of course he comes back upon it later on, and there's a, a beehive in it, and there's honey. He takes some of the honey, he takes of that honey, and then he brings some to his parents. And of course his parents didn't know what the source of the honey, but they ate of it. And I had started mentioning the most important pieces, but I was building to a crescendo here of what this means, and it's, it's really a wonderful prophetic uh, device used by Samson, given to him, I'm sure, by God, so that it would be put in scripture for a specific reason. It's not just a riddle, because if he was a, a funny kind of guy and he's just telling riddles, it could have been something else. But he's not a funny guy. He's not a very nice guy, actually. But he had this riddle, and it was that particular thing about a lion uh, with honey and so forth. So I wanted to parse that. But remember I said to you last week, the key to remember is of what tribe, or what lineage and tribe of, tri of the tribe, of a tribe, is Samson? Danite. Why is that important? What I had shown you last week and I had said the week before is that it is prophesied that Dan would be part and parcel of the global judgment of Israel. And I showed you through some scriptures and I have them here again if anybody wants, I think they're in my case there, if anybody wants to see them again, that there is very strong evidence in scripture that not only will the Antichrist be of Greek and Roman lineage, but also of Danite lineage. And indeed, he has to be, because the, the Jews will not accept him as Messiah unless he's a Jew. That's the whole point. And, th and they are expecting a Jewish man, and by the way, only a man. So all of this has to tie in. The key that there's a lion, which if you look at, and I, pr I show this in Scripture as well, the lion shows, in that in same type of prophetic view of all of the tribes of Israel, that Judah is a lion's whelp. We talked about that. And Jacob predicting that Judah or equating Judah with a lion and then saying that the scepter of rulership will not, be, not depart and we talked about how that's written in the stars and it winds up through David to Jesus Christ who will come back and, and, and because he says at the end of that prophecy for, for Judah it will not depart until it comes you know full circle if you will to the one to whom it belongs which of course is Jesus Christ. We also talked about Judah not only being a lion but Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah so there's this very deep uh, meaning between a lion and Judah and Jesus Christ himself. So the lion that Samson killed, you notice it wasn't a bear, it wasn't some other animal, it was a lion. And at that moment, remember we talked about the hair, that wasn't the source of Samson's strength. It was at that moment that God first, it says in scripture, gave him that super strength for the purpose of killing that lion. So you can see the Danites and this whole judgment thing special power is given to this tribe, by the way, which is not mentioned of the 12 tribes of Israel in Revelation. Van is left out. So if you want to look at my study on Revelation, it's, thank you. <laughs> Having said that, the lion or the devourer is a type of the tribe of both Judah and Jesus Christ as final judge of Israel and of course as final judge of this world. The honey or the something sweet that comes out of the devourer is a type of if the lion is Judah and it is judged by Danite, you would figure that's the end of it and it does die. Something good has to come out of all of that because they are God's people, especially the, the tribe of Judah. So 
the something sweet is a type of Jesus Christ coming out of and in as part of that lion. Does that make sense? And that's another part of it. It is highly unlikely that a bees would build a hive inside of a carcass of any animal other than this riddle. But it actually happened in this particular instance and it's a, I'd say it was a miracle. I mean, anything that we don't understand because we either can't produce it or it's foreign to how we live in these four dimensions of space-time could either be a miracle or it could be a demonic issue. Right? It could be a miracle or a cursing depending on who does it and why it's done. This is a miracle because this should not happen in the order of things, in the natural order of things that God uh, created. So we have this honey that Samson himself takes, by the way, as a Danite because they can be saved through Jesus Christ, right, through the sacrifice of their Messiah, anyone of those tribes or a Gentile can partake of this honey. Uh, Samson then took this honey and it's just a matter of course, shared it with his parents. Parents are Jews or Israelites. They didn't even know where the honey came from, but it was offered to them and they had the ability to take part of it. That's part of it. Jesus came through the line of Judah, was the line of Judah, as a something sweet for them first and then to the Gentile, as a blessing that came out of, <coughs> of this lion. Honey is sweet no matter where the hive of bees make it. Unfortunately, it's easy to assume that the real value is in the sweetness of the honey, but we also know that in reality, there's also a lot of nutrients in honey too. But most people like honey because it's got a good taste to it, and it's got good texture if you like that kind of thing. But a lot of times we don't give consideration to where it came from. We just assume it comes from hives, but most of the hives that it comes from nowadays are artificial. It doesn't matter. What, I'm, what my point is is that in this prophecy, most people don't care. They want some kind of sweetness in their life, and here's the point. The Jew is looking for the sweetness of salvation, of redemption. There are only two major religions in the world, actually two that I know, only know of in all the world, that actually have as part of it redemption. Not Islam. There's no redemption in Islam. It's all works-based. There's no redemption in Buddhism or, or Shintoism or Zoroastrianism or any of the other isms that you talk about. It's usually works-based. Or it's believing in yourself, which is still a works-based religion. Only Judaism and Christianity have the concept of a Messiah. That's something sweet we know can only come from a certain source. It has to be the right source. That's the issue. So whether it's sweet or not is immaterial. It can be sweet, but it can still be damaging or may not be efficacious. Samson killing the lion, like I said before, the lion was judged by Samson, who was a Danite. And he was given the power of God for that particular time. And that strength stayed with him, by the way, until the end, when he asked for it again, just to get rid of the Philistines. So that, that strength to judge is applied both to Israel and to the Gentiles, with Christ as the head. And what was the prize for those who answered the, um, the riddle correctly? Remember? fine oh, linen. Now, if you looked at my notes, you would find in the beginning of the notes, we talked about linen because we talked about Adam and Eve knowing that they were naked. When they were naked before they realized it, what was taken away from them? And I proved to you in that point, again, I'm not going to get into it now, all the way through the book of, of the Bible, the books of the Bible throughout Revelation, when linen, is linen comes back, it's symbolic of the covering of God's Shekinah glory. If you don't have that, you are truly naked. And that's not just a euphemism, that's just, just a nice saying. Without that, there is a nakedness that is so deep that 
Adam and Eve knew what naked was all of a sudden because they were, didn't know what it was before. It's not just physical nakedness. It is nakedness, spiritual nakedness. And that's the, the basis of all human beings. And that's why we've come to where we are. But God's Shekinah glory will be restored. As a matter of fact, it's restored really in us as Christians, although we don't live in a world of that yet. But we are covered by this fine linen. And it's going to come back, the return of the divine covering of God's Shekinah glory, to, to us who get it, who have only been given it as a gift by the Holy Spirit, who partake of the sweetness of Jesus Christ. We have the Shekinah glory. It's only through that we can understand all of this. It's only through that that we are saved. It's only through that we are counted as righteous because it's this covering. We're always covered with the blood, which is also analogous to this fine linen. It is given to us as a reward for understanding this riddle. We win. We win. We understand the riddle. Right? I mean, if you look at the way it works out, and our reward is that fine linen. And that's what I was going to tell you last week. <laughs> Isn't that great? Now you can turn to the book of Ruth. Yeah, we only spent about, what, five minutes on that? But I wanted you to see, and as I, I couldn't believe it, I said, we didn't have time. And you know what happens when we run out of time. I get, I feel rushed, and I start tripping over myself, and I start forgetting the most important things I try to tell you. So, I, thankfully, there's always next week. <laughs> Um, so I hope that was meaningful to you. And if you, if you really, just go read that again. Go read that in Scripture again when you have a chance this week. Understanding what you, what you know now. And see if that doesn't fit so well. And thank God that that riddle is one that you can interpret. And because of that, you have won the prize of this covering of the fine linen. And Samson won't have to go and steal it from somebody else to give it to you. So, the book of Ruth. The ultimate love story. The main characters in this book are, are going to be a departure from the main characters we've, see, characters we've seen in the other books. Kind of like a, a refreshing little uh, respite, if you will, of the, the debauchery and the sinisterness and of all of the foolishness and all of the other things that we see all about all of the characters <laughs> that we've seen so far. The only, other, the only other character that I know we're going to see at some point in the future, should the Lord tarry and should we ever get there, is Daniel. Daniel is one, I don't know if he's the only one, but certainly one of the only ones that nothing bad is said about his character. He doesn't really do anything wrong. He is the upstanding man that he is, and his actions are pure. But going back to the book of Ruth, it is the ultimate love story. And these characters show a little conniving, but great devotion and great love and honor and loyalty. Also, what we're going to learn about this book is that because of the way the story rolls out and, and why the story is being told, as we'll see in, in the way it is, is that, you know, we've talked somewhat about in this class when it was appropriate about Jewish tradition. And there's a lot of that in this book. And it has to be. Remember, we talked about how the Jewish wedding rolls out. We've talked about how that really maps in into the whole plan of God through Jesus Christ and how redemption happens, the bride price and all those things, right? How the... the uh, the suitor would eventually come to take his bride to his father's house. You know the whole story. And, and she never really knows when he's going to come, so she has to be ready. You can see automatically the prophecy in that. Well, there's more to it than, than just that. The Jewish traditions were given to them, and, and they, they followed them, not just because they were either told to and they had to do it. It became part of the way they lived because it was part of their life, their traditions. You look puzzled. Is, is, am I... Oh, okay. Uh, I just wonder if I'm clarifying. Because sometimes I go off on a tangent. Oh. <laughs> if it was, I wouldn't have said anything. I would have said, he looks puzzled again. I'm not even going to ask him. 
No, no, but you look pretty intelligent there, Bob. <laughs> Going off on a tangent here. So, anyway. So most importantly, it is also one of the main books in the Old Testament which applies directly to the church in its form and its function. Because you know, in the Old Testament, there really isn't much at all talked about the church. As a matter of fact, it's not really alluded to very strongly throughout all of Scripture. But it's not really talked about very much. Well, it's not talked about directly here in the book of Ruth, but it certainly is strongly shown of, of this relationship of the church. Once you are part and parcel of the church of Jesus Christ through the venue of his shed blood and accepting his sacrifice, you become so special to him. And then under Jewish traditions, you'll see that the law of the Redeemer, the laws of the, of the uh, Leverite marriage, things like that, the kinsman Redeemer, we'll talk about those things. Because the church becomes whom to Jesus Christ? The bride. It's just the nature of the bride and the bride price and all those things. And interesting, uh, it is interesting that by tradition, this book is read by rabbis on the Feast of Pentecost. Now, they don't know that what we know about the Feast of Pentecost. Remember I showed you about the Holy Days? It's a menorah design. And the middle is, is Pentecost with the three spring and the three fall Holy Days on either end of that. And what was the pivotal uh, thing that happened on Pentecost? In a Pentecost, cost, am I still in New York? Pentecost. In, uh, in the New Testament. That's right. It was the exact beginning, because of that, of the church. was that day, Pentecost, which is the pivotal day. And if you look at a menorah, it's the, the middle lamp is called the... And it services all of the other lamps. That, and the other lamps are always arranged to point to the servant lamp. So Pentecost so tightly is, in, is so tightly integrated with the prediction of Christ's coming, as we've discussed in previous classes, and um, here, it's, uh, it's now this holy day, if you will, is by the Jews who don't even know who Messiah is, they recite the Book of Ruth on Pentecost. It's, it's a wonderful tradition. I don't even know how it got started, but it did, and that's what they do. This book also ties together some of the key social structures that we just talked about of Israelites, such as the laws of gleaning, redemption, and the Leverite marriage, and the concept of the goel or the kinsman redeemer. Very important concepts. We're even going to hear about, um, you remember the incident a few years ago when this man threw a shoe? <laughs> yeah. at, and somebody just did it recently. Somebody, did you hear about that? I heard it in the news. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was a governor. Was it a, yeah. And missed too. I mean, if you're going to be a bad shot, you know, have somebody else throw the shoe, you know. But in scripture, there are two uses for, actually three uses for a shoe. The one for your feet. The one where you will, Use it, as, as we heard in the New Testament, where you know, they're instructed to shake the dust off their sandals or their shoes of a house that refuses to accept the good news, right? the gospel. There's also in here, we're going to find another use for a shoe, for the kinsman redeemer. We're going to talk about that, so keep your shoes on. <laughs> Unless, of course, you have a reason to take them off, but you may. You have to learn what this is. We're going to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're also going to go back later to the book of Leviticus to talk about some of these laws to see how they were given, how the characters which you've, I'm sure, heard about, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, how they understand how all of this works, and it works so wonderfully in all of their lives in this. We also, uh, there's one key, uh, it's not really a law, but it seems to be, uh, one key figure of Naomi is, uh, anybody saw Fiddler on the Roof? Yenta. Yenta. Naomi is a Yenta. 
and she's good at it too. You, when we get there, I think it's chapter three. We're not going to get there today, but she's good at it too. So they all play the parts very well, and it's a, it's a really wonderful story. So let's start with Ruth chapter one and verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, now remember this is on the heels of the judges, and and this we'll find out that this book was most probably part of the whole scripture of Judges. You know, it wasn't really a separate thing because this takes place right after Samson dies and Eli, the high priest, inherits the governorship of, uh, of Israel. And that's when we go into the books of First and Second Samuel later on. We talk about uh, Samuel being un- the understudy of Eli because and, and uh, we heard about that. I think Joel talked about it a couple weeks ago. So you see the flow here. All right. So it's around the time of the judges. So in, in, uh, when the, uh, the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So now they're moving to some Gentile territory, but it was only going to be temporary, at least that was the intent for this family, until the famine was over. This man's name was Elimelech, which means... In Hebrew, I'm going to give you the names here because you, you've probably seen, if not in this class, for sure you've seen it on your studies or in your studies, that these names, when you translate them into the Hebrew equivalent, really tell a lot about the person. And you're going to see some names here that tell a lot about the people. It's, it's kind, of, uh, kind of funny in a couple instances and, and very telling in, in all of them. So his name was Elimelech, which is God is my king. His wife's name was Naomi, which is pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malon, which means unhealthy, <laughs> and Kilian, which means puny. Look at the Hebrew translation. You, you'll see that that's what it means. Yeah, so she has two sons named unhealthy and puny. Is that like saying, like naming a boy, you know, a boy named Sue? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather be named Sue. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be named Sue, though, than puny. <laughs> My son, puny. Can you imagine if I named you puny? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I know. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Him and Tom Jones with Delilah. You know, these were biblical men. I never realized. <laughs> oh, boy. They were gifted, huh? Oh, boy. So, anyway, so we have uh, God is my king, pleasant, and their sons, unhealthy and puny. <laughs> Sounds like a joke. That's so sad. Yeah, it is. And they were uh, Ephratites from Bethlehem. Judea. So now we know where they were from. So there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, which is in Bethlehem, which is the town of Bethlehem in Judea. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Uh-oh. There's one gone. I guess he's not moving back when this famine's done. And she was left with her two sons. Now she's a widow. And what happens typically to widows? They become destitute. Happens today? It happened back then. But there were provisions made in a society. There, there should be provisions made in a society, and there were provisions made in the society to take care of the widows as well and, uh, and those who were poor, and we're going to see that, how it plays out. So we have Elimelech uh, dies, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah. I want to say Ophrah, <laughs> but it ain't her. One named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived, about, lived there about 10 years, so now we're talking a whole decade between the time they left Bethlehem and went to, to Moab. It's a long time. And now she's widowed. She has her two sons. They marry, and it's Orpah and Ruth. After they've lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion, both unhealthy and puny, died. Well, you probably knew that was coming. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Now, so just, just see now, at, in this 10-year time span, you see all of the best laid plans of mice and men, if you will. They were all going to go back when the famine ended. It was already 10 years. You know, how long has this famine got to go? Well, it wasn't going to be too long until it ended, but unfortunately, they didn't make it. Ruth 1 and, and verse 8. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So you see the setup here. She wants to go back, but she wants these young women to remarry so they also won't remain destitute and have normal lives and, and, and stay within Moab. I mean, these are Moabite women. These are Gentiles, or pagans, if you will. They let them. She's saying, you go as pagans or Gentiles or whatever you are. I'm not demanding anything of you. Very altruistic, I think, but I want you to be married. I want you to marry your people, and that was the custom in those days. Israel kept on breaking that, right, by marrying into others. But she was saying to them, go back and, and live your lives where you came from. This, you know, you might as well do it. Not a bad thing. And then uh, she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And, they, and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? She's like she's saying, why would you come with me? I'm going back. I have nothing. I don't know what I'm going to get when I get there. And it's not in your land and your people anyway. It has nothing really to do with them. And I'm going to have, uh, and I'm not going to have, let's see, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? So return home, my daughters, and I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried? See this, this Yenta attitude here? She's starting to nag. She's starting to make, I mean, this is obvious. Even if I had sons tonight, could you see her following them around like this, trying to make sure? She was a strong woman, and she had strong opinions, and she made sure. I mean, you could see by her character here, she was going to push her agenda for their benefit. It's okay, but she pushed. She's a pusher. And that probably is a good basis of being a Yenta, if you saw a fiddle on a roof. <laughs> Bushy, boy. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now she's thinking... You know, God is really judging her or down on her for some reason. So there's a lot, there are a lot of dynamics here. Verse 14, at this they wept again. Then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And here's the key. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi urging her daughter-in-laws to depart and very strongly. And they, Ruth stays, continuing in verse 15. Look, said Naomi. You know, you can just see this. Look. It's all great, you want to come with me and everything, but your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, go back with her. This is not just a, thank you so much, I love you. This is, look, go. But with all of that, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Listen to this now. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Now, here's a couple of things here. Here's a pledge, first of all. You see where this is going. But from a Gentile, from a Moabite woman, who must have a stake in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who must understand something about this God, to not only want to do this, to go back and live with her people because she sees the value in these people. 
because she sees the value in and believes in, she must have started believing in, rather, this God, their God. You see? Oprah, Oprah, whatever her name is, <laughs> she's all new age now. She runs a show, I think, uh, in Chicago. I think this is her last season. Really? Yep. I think she's done. It is. Yep. Will she go back to her people? <laughs> so you see here what, what Ruth is saying with Oprah didn't. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so real, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized, now listen to this, Naomi with a, you know, the wagging finger, but even Naomi here realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging, or should I say nagging her. Right? So we cannot let this example of allegiance and devotion go uncommented. Ruth, as a Gentile, wills to stay with Naomi, an Israelite. As a matter of fact, Ruth makes a vow to her willfully and to have a lifelong bond to Naomi and her people no matter what and makes this to the God of heaven, to the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, like I was saying, just now, sounds like she fully believes in. So intense was Ruth with this that Naomi stopped. She didn't nag her anymore about it. She probably had to give in because she knew that she wasn't going to stop. You see the parallels here. We're grafted in, aren't we? To who? The Jew. Israelites. And why? Because we chose to. And once we know having set our hand to the plow and being hooked up on that plow, there is no turning back. That's why you hear to hear of Christians who say, I, you know, I just love Jesus Christ and all that, but I just can't believe that he's a Jew. They see such a total disconnect because of what the churches have done over the centuries, disconnecting Christians from Jews. By the way, that's the basis of anti-Semitism. That's a lie straight from the pit. But so many people believe it, even today. They, and they don't even know that they believe it. They just have a hard time understanding, well, Jesus is a Jew, how can he be a Christian? Well, I guess it's okay, because I'll be a Christian and everything's happy. You see what I'm saying? These people are destined for pain in their lives. Because if, the, if this is their opinion, that means they probably don't know much else about anything. Very dangerous condition. Very dangerous condition. And at the worst, it leads to anti-Semitism. And you saw what happened in World War II, when most Christians did not do anything. They sat by. And what do you think is going to happen again? What's happening now? There are a lot of Christians who believe, don't get me started, there are a lot of Christians who believe that the Palestinians have a right to that land. Have you ever been one of those? Have you ever talked to ever, ever, anybody who has had that opinion, even now? You can't, you, yeah, it's awful. It's awful. You think God is pleased? No. No. They're only going to be saved, some of them, by this, by, because of Jesus' blood on them. And never ever, ever, and I'll say it again, ever be afraid to back Israel up. Never be afraid because you think it might, well, if they're a new Christian, do it gently. If they're an older Christian and should know better, depending on the context and your relationship with them, maybe sometimes be a little harder on them. But you make it clear that right is right and wrong is wrong and truth is truth and false is false and they do not meet. Never be afraid of saying anything because you might confuse somebody. Do it gently, sometimes firmly, depending on what you know they already know, your relationship with them. Never, ever, ever stop telling the truth. Or to be politically correct. Thank you. Because that is the major disease. You, you hit it on the head. That's right. And today, like every other nation who has fallen, it starts with political correctness. If not an outright physical invasion by armed militias, it's political correctness, which undermines. It's like a gopher who wants to get into your chicken pen. We've had them. Or what, what, what crawls in there? Gophers. Uh, fox. Something like that. Whatever eats chickens. If they can't get in through the door, they try to dig under it. Yeah. 
What's that? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was Some crazy. chicken eat what? Oh, they don't go. They don't dig under the thing. Uh, I thought you were came from a farm. <laughs> As it used to be said, I'm laughing. What? I just had this conversation uh, a couple weeks ago with one of my Christian friends at work, and uh, he lives over on the other side of Keene, and, and he was, you know, we had this big discussion that he thinks the Palestinians should have it. I said, why don't we just give them New Hampshire? It's about the same size. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you can move out of Westmoreland. At least it won't be going to her directly against God to do that. Yeah. But he didn't want to do that. No. And it's the and I bet you, like most Christians. Which is kind of excusable, because if, if they really don't know Scripture that well, you know, I mean, I, I don't say it's excusable, what I say it's understandable. Who is Edom? Who is Esau? Where do the Palestinians come from? If you were in this class, you know. I showed you on maps where they came from. We trace their history. And God says Edom is cursed, and they will be cursed, and they will be actually chasing the, the Israelites back to Petra during the tribulation, which is where they were. The place of safety, which God is sort of like going to slap Satan through these people in his face by giving the Jews sanctuary in the place that these people picked up as their own, as their own stronghold in those days. And they used to go along the King's Highway. I told you this was along the front of Edom, I mean of uh, Petra. And they used to come out and they used to go and attack the, the, the bands of, of, of wagons because that was the major thoroughfare of, of goods trade. And then they used to go back into Petra because there was the, they had this little cleft, not cleft, but this little passageway that they could easily defend. They used to pour hot, hot boiling oil on those who tried to get back their stuff. Do you see where this is going? These, these, these Christians, that, you know, that's what, well, that's what I said. So, you know, I'm sorry, I get really annoyed. This is, this is not like you can't know this stuff. I'm going to have to spank somebody today. I can't, he's too old now. I can't do that anymore. Besides, he could beat me up. <laughs> anyway. So keep on keeping on with the truth. Don't let, don't let an opportunity to press the truth ever escape you, either gently or not so gently, depending on the situation. Always within context of the situation. Okay, we have about 10 minutes. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. So now they're back home, or at least to Naomi's home. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women ex exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? She came back after ten years. She was well known. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So this is not right, is it? She's not doing a nice thing here, but you can see, again, her personality, which plays very strongly into this. She's fickle, absolutely. But She's angry. Yes. If she hadn't been, they, she, uh, Naomi, I mean, Ruth was married to her son for 10 years. Yes. So she had a long time to spend with That's true. Obviously, this woman made an impact on her life. Mm -hmm. Even if she now is bitter and all. You are happened. correct. I'm glad you brought that up because it is true. You're right. I mean, they, they were together all this time. And it was Naomi probably, was, as you're saying, I think, most probably, a good part of Ruth tying herself into the Jewish. But her, the, the other girl did not. And, and so, but I agree that because of Naomi, 
And you're going to see more of this because Naomi actually, because of the Yenta, is also a good thing because you're going to see that this seals or helps bring her into a marriage with this Boaz who is the primary figure in this story. As a type, I'll tell you right now, you probably know this already, but we're going to examine it, obviously, here. It's a type of Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, the wealthy man, who's a, who's a blessing to all he touches. Matter of fact, you will see Naomi says this a little later as we go here. She says, this is, he's a kinsman. He's been a, he's been a blessing to both the, those who are alive and dead. Isn't Jesus Christ that major and blessing to both those who are alive and who are dead? Yeah, go ahead, sure. She cleaves to Israel, yeah. grass in. I can go now. She just told you the whole story. Oh, sorry. No, <laughs> I'm teasing you. That's it. That's exactly it. You're exactly 100% right. And this is exactly where it's going. It's a wonderful, that's what I say. This is a true respite in the whole storyline of the Old Testament. Yes? Yeah. So, and in my mind, she was being treated rightly by God, and she was just admitting that. The Lord is, has given me my consequences because of how I chose. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a good analogy. The key is, is if you look at it, they had planned to go back from the beginning. It's that the only difference was, was that her husband died an untimely death, and then her sons died an untimely death. So all of a sudden she was destitute while there was still a famine. And now if she goes back, she's got nothing. So it could be that too. Well, yeah, but they had planned to go back. You're right. I think you could look at it that way too. So, she, but also like Job, right? I mean, she, she, Job never blamed God, which his friends did. But she, so I can understand that she could be bitter, but she did choose. And because it's a personality. So like, I don't think I would hold it against her. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that because of her personality, she's less a complainer. She's a nagger and a complainer, and, and that's what she's she's feeling bad, and that's okay, you know. But she's gonna trust the Lord for her provision, and 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 she's gonna see how this is gonna happen. She doesn't quite see it yet, because you're gonna see how this rolls out. But she will, and and so I think you're right there. Okay, so yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, look, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really trying to, to, to badmouth her. I'm just telling you the facts as they seem to roll out. Because my point is not to badmouth or, or unnecessarily goodmouth somebody like Ruth. It's very easy to, 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 to bring the glories of Ruth into this. My point here is just examine their personalities. Examine how they present themselves as characters. Because then we understand, I think, more deeply what it means at, that these, these truths are keyed to each of us and, and, our, and how we're built. And we respond in kind to how we're built. And God uses that to sew together this tapestry no matter what the thread is, no matter what the color of the thread is. He's got a place for it. That, that's my point. So I don't want you to think that I'm ganging up on Naomi. It, 
it's just too easy to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm just giving you the, the facts as I see them. So everybody has the right opinion here. I just think that I just want you to see that. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. And and by extension, what you're saying is, which is true. If someone called, if they named her pleasant, she probably was. But we don't have any history other than this. So. And all of us wouldn't come to the kids unless we got to that That's right. That's a good point. And so, where God, of course, was in all of this, that yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's look at this. I don't know, again, I'm just being, from what I read in Scripture, well, you, we can examine it. I don't know if she realized so much that she was bitter and she should turn from it. She's also an opportunist. That's how we look at this. You'll see. You'll see. She's a yenta, she's a planner, she's a nagger, and she's an opportunist. You know, she's a woman in her own right here. <laughs> she's pretty self-reliant here. No. Yeah. She's trying to get her son to marry. Oh, so she yeah, so she gets involved in setting up. Yeah. So yeah. So She's like Yeah. We got like 2 minutes left, so obviously we're not going to get much further, but I just want to continue along to set the stage here. So here's the setup and here's the story. The first thing we see is Naomi's concern for the future of her two daughters-in-law, Ruth's deep unconditional love and commitment to her widowed mother-in-law. No matter how pleasant or bitter she is, it does not matter at this point. And she did learn some very good things from Naomi. And she's also going to be the t used by Naomi to get what Naomi thinks she needs to survive. And we're going to find out more about that next week. But uh, obviously all of this is sewn together by God. These attributes are important to know about these first two key characters as the story unfolds. Next week we're going to start in, uh, we're going to continue rather in Ruth chapter 2. So if you want to review that this week, you're going to start seeing the introduction of them being back in Bethlehem. You're going to see the introduction of how she <clears throat> coincidentally starts gleaning in the field of Boaz. By the way, this law of gleaning we're going to also consider because I'll just leave you with this. You know, the welfare state as it exists is not right. right? And it also says in Scripture, if a man or a woman does not work, they should not eat. Also, a, a man who does not provide for his home is what? Worse than an infidel. But there is, there is need to take care of the poor. And the law, as is put out in Deuteronomy, God is complete in his planning because Jesus even said the poor will always be among you, meaning that he wouldn't, but the point is, is that the poor always has to be provided for. In this country, the poor were originally provided for by the church. That's why they got tax-exempt status. I don't know if you knew that was the beginning of all of that. It was. Because the government said, we will help you take care of the people, not like today where the government takes care of them, but we will give you tax relief so that you can use the government's money that they wouldn't get from, the, from everybody so that you can pool it to help people on an individual, one-by-one, one, in-town, local basis. Also, you'll see the law does that. It also provides for, um, that they, so they can go and they can glean, but you'll notice, and I'll leave this with you, that they have to still work for what they get because the gleaning is up to them. It's just the provision in that law that they, and the landowner owner should leave the edges of his field. But Boaz goes one better. What an honorable man. He gives her more than just the, the, the um, capability of gleaning because he has to. This is a wonderful story, and we'll continue it next week. So have a wonderful week. Look at Naomi and enjoy her for who she is. But don't nag. <laughs> I'm just teasing.